preparing to live stream. We are live. This is Value After Hours. I am Tobias Carlisle, joined as always by my co-host, Jake Taylor. Our special guest for today is Kyla Harris, <laughs> Kyla Hassan, Willis Capital. How are you, Kyla? Good to see you. Hey, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. You take one week off, Kotobi, and oh, you're rusty. No. I mean, even... it's not like it's not like I'm it's not like I'm at the top of my game when I'm fresh either. <laughs> uh, how's this how's this market treating you, Carl? What, what are you what are you looking at? What are you thinking? Like, what's uh, what's it look like to you? Ooh, uh, yeah, maybe a little background for the listeners. I'm a I run mostly taxable California money, um, so I, I end up me too. <laughs> Yeah, very taxable. So I, I've always thought the best way to handle that's just to own stuff long term and defer the taxes. So I tend to be kind of a quality investor. Um, so 2022 didn't have such a great year. Uh, and then this year, much to my surprise, most everything has come ripping back. <laughs> uh, Congrats. So, well, thanks. But I think on the, you know, since the end of 2021, it's been, you know, fine. Uh, um, Let's talk a little bit about quality. What, what, yeah. what, is, what does quality mean to you? Ooh, that's a big one to start, isn't it? you right out of the gate. <laughs> yeah, right out yeah, of the gate. Yeah, right. There, I think there's a couple books on this that I've read, but barely understood. <laughs> um, certainly not enough to talk about them. Um I think for me, when it comes to companies, um, you know, I think there's business quality and I have always thought it's a little easier to, to identify what's not quality, you know, than to say, oh, these, these are things that are going to be great. I think there's vast parts of the investing universe that is, you know, the businesses just aren't very good. Uh, and most businesses aren't very good. Um, I think capitalism is pretty competitive and dynamic and, um, ha to have a great business for a long time is really difficult. Um, so, you know, I, I think businesses that make things that customers want at price points that make sense for them, uh, that are providing value, you know, I know Jake, uh, kind of talked about this in his book. Um, and I agree with, with a lot of what he said, um, you know, at the end of the day, you're providing something for a customer that they want. Um, and hopefully, you know, your customers are going to be there long-term would be another sort of filter for that. Um, and I think on the management side, for me, it's always been, is it run by people that, you know, care about the shareholders? Um, is it run by people that kind of know how to allocate capital and that can, you know, look different for for different businesses, but, you know, generally I think you want them to, to sort of understand those two things and, you know, to protect the earnings power of the business long-term. Um, I think for me, those are, those are the big ones. And then, you know, maybe you could layer on capital structure if you want, making sure that you're not heinously levered, uh, if you shouldn't be. Yeah. So let's say, uh, factor definition, less a QMJ and more sort of maybe Buffett's definition where you're looking at quality of the business, quality of the management um sort of the 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 all the way down to the product the uniqueness of the product or the the difficulty to sort of substitute the product yeah i think so i mean i think one good quick filter is just 
why do the customers buy it? And if the answer is price, then that's difficult. And if it's something else, then I think you're much more likely to have a quality business there. And of course you can have a, um, a Costco um, where, you know, price is the thing or a progressive maybe um, quality can exist in those, but you know, that's more difficult uh, in my opinion, but if you can get it, if you can be the low cost provider, uh, that can be pretty unassailable as well, obviously. I think you can look at it still <clears throat> in the financials. It shows up in different places, even though it's a, a kind of a, a feels like a squishy term. I mean, if you look at the very top with kind of gross margin, that sort of reflects the quality of the internal business. Start going below that on the income statement. And then I start, I think you start to see reflections of management and you know, how are they handling SGNA? Um, cash flow statement for me is is largely a cap allocation exercise. Like what are they doing with the money? And then balance sheet tells you a little bit of like how conservative are they um relative to you know cash and debt and um some somewhat of the business as well. Like, you know, some businesses require more inventory, more working capital. So it, Financials really do tell you a lot of what's actually happening in the real world um, if you dig into them enough. Yeah, totally. Let me just give a quick shout out to all the folks who've uh, who've dialed in. Santa Domingo, uh, South Kingston, Rhode Island, Helsinki, Boston, Bendigo, Victoria. What's up? Tallahassee, Jupiter, Oslo, Norway, Braunschweig, Germany. I hope I said that right. Limerick Island, what's up? Savalina, Finland, Helsinki, British Columbia, Canada. Oh, there's a there's a lake here that's got too many letters in for me. Lake Webster, Massachusetts, Norberg, <laughs> Sweden, Toronto, London, Wales. What's up? Minneapolis, Holland Park, London, Finland, France. Good for you. I think you win. Scotch Plains, New Jersey. What's up? Thanks everybody. It's good to see everybody again. I had a good break. Happy to Yo. be back. What'd you do on your break, Toby? Give us the rundown. Went to Tahoe, had a look at the lake, went to Yosemite, had another look at <laughs> lake there. Yeah, it was fun. Jumped off some rocks, tried to impress my boys. They weren't impressed at all. <laughs> Did you do any flips off the rocks or just? Negative, negative. <laughs> I, went, I went to Tahoe where I haven't been for a long time. And last time I was there, I jumped off this rock that in my memory was, you know, way, way up in the sky. And I got back and there are two places to jump off. And I looked at it and I thought, I must have jumped off that high one because that low one looks way too low, but I'll go off the low one first. And I got up on the top of the low one and I was like, no, 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 this is where I jumped off last time. This is a long way down. But there were kids jumping off this, like I was jumping. It was like two stories or something like that, which feels a long way. But there were kids jumping off this other one. It was like, it was twice as high. Wow. I don't know how that. think like 30, 40 feet, that kind of thing? Huge. Yeah. Like, I don't even know, four stories, something like that. Wow. It was a long way down. Like you could count the seconds all the way down to the bottom. There are a few boys who went up, a few boys who walked. I, I, well, I you know about, about mass and gravity and yeah, you know, the mass right. adds a lot uh, relative to, it's like dropping an ant down a mine shaft. That's like right. It, it's just going to be concussed. But I could have emptied <laughs> that lake. Drop a horse down and it's... Uh... <laughs> yeah. yeah it was I think once you start getting above, you know, have you ever seen one of those like 10 meter high dives? Those things oh, yeah. are those things are high. Once you start getting above twenty twenty five, it gets it gets scary quick. And it's when you stand up there too, you add a bit of extra height, and you look down. It's a long way down. Your body knows that it shouldn't be jumping off that height. It's very unwilling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't wuss out. Actually, 
I, I actually backflopped off of 25 feet once. It was it was not a good situation. I you think landed I was, on the back? Um, yeah, like straight on my back. It was a rope swing, and it there was a a little rope to pull the rope in. And as I like, I was pretty young and and I took too long to let go and I let go on the way back and my leg hit the the rope and I just, you know, fell straight on my back. And as I remember, my whole back was purple. And so anyways, (laughs) maybe smart. Don't do that one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If I did that now, I'd probably be dead. (laughs) Would, Would you say that that's what your 2022 felt like? (laughs) <laughs> yeah it was uh 2022 was my portfolio is usually made up of a bunch of like relatively kind of expensive quality names and then some growth stocks went down 10 percent. i said oh you know I, I haven't really bought in you know many growth stocks historically maybe i should now and then i put a few some money into those and quickly got just completely demolished as i should have uh, it's like I made every mistake in the book, style drift, uh, yeah. you know, FOMO. <laughs> it's it like a disaster. I want to know why value got punished when it didn't participate in the run-up. We all got beaten up last year too. It's like I didn't have any of the, I didn't get the run-up beforehand. Just got the, just got the. <laughs> the stick. The wet newspaper afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> well, to, what's, to, how's, how's value done like since end of the year 2021? Is it? Are the markets what down a little, maybe five percent or something? Ten? I would say I think slightly outperformed last year, slightly outperformed this year, and then has had a pretty good run. This is one of the things that I was going to talk about. I, I tweeted these out earlier today. There's two charts. One is fr- one is from Alpha Architect that tracks the most expensive, the, the cheapest uh, EBIT EV decile against the well. It's it's a little bit more complicated than that. It's the median in that in that basket against the market. And that spread has been very wide. And I've said when that spread closes, there'll be some pretty good performance value. It's been reasonably good since June. And there's been a mass, but not to the extent that that has kind of closed up. So there's some turnover in the in that port in that value portfolio that for whatever reason has it hasn't been captured in the move. And then the other one that I thought was quite unusual too was Gotham, which is the Greenblatt. Fund. They have this little web page where they track the yield on their portfolio, and then they have a a back tested forward return over two years. So, in March, it was at the ninety fifth percentile towards cheap, and they were forecasting returns of something like sixty five percent over the next two years because that's what they have done historically when it's been in that kind of range. And here we are now. We're in the forty-fourth percentile, so it's come in a very really? long way. I mean, wow. now it's now it's more expensive than average, mm. rather than cheap. That, that much cheaper than average, and the forward returns are less than are, are less than half. Just it's like thirty-two percent forward. And uh, I don't I don't know if it, I felt that move. I don't know if it sort of performed <laughs> through that period. It did a little bit, but not to the extent that not to the extent that that seems to have come in. I find it a little bit baffling. It's hard to kind of understand, honestly. Is, is there a turnover in the underlying? Oh yeah, that, well, that's that, right, there's that's reconstitution of those portfolios. Yeah, right. that's what's caused yeah. it. But I don't know why it is that it's it's recon. That they've clearly that or what that says is that they've earned less. That portfolio has earned less, right. and now it's looking more expensive than it has traditionally. So I don't know what's driving that energy. Perhaps yeah, I was going to say maybe oil prices coming down or. Um, I would well, assume still that, above average. Yeah, that's true. Although down from what were they last summer when massive 20? yeah. 
that that would yeah. be that would that would explain it. That would explain yeah. a lot of that move. To, huh. to what extent do you are you fully invested or are you do you carry cash or are you sort of um, what do you call it ad hoc kind of or do you manage towards some sort of um, exposure? How, how do you think absolute about or relative return? Yeah. I, you know, so I invest money for individuals and after what, I guess now maybe 11 years of doing that. Um, one good lesson is everybody probably wants a little more cash out of their account than they think. Um, and probably even more than I think even adjusting for me knowing that, you know, it's like, you know, people, you know, they want to buy a house. And and so usually I do some financial planning for people. And, but then the surprises are mostly, oh, we want to spend a little of the money instead of we're going to like save. It's not, uh, uh, <laughs> oh, we uh, windfall. Uh, we won the lottery. Here's a bigger chunk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and like, you know, listen, I, I, I think that's really great. Uh, and sometimes I think it's, hey, we've made some money and now we can afford to buy a house, you know, whatever it is. So, so at any rate, because of that, I usually keep almost no matter what, maybe 20% of people's accounts sort of in, I would say bonds, but over the last 10 years, that's been cash. Um, and then I'll invest the rest. And then, you know, if I can't find stuff I like, and if, uh, you know, for what I'm going to get after tax, if I, if I sell it, like sometimes I'll trim some stuff. So this year I've I've just you know, some things have rallied and kind of gotten closer to where I thought they were worth. And so I'll trim them. And maybe I've done that for seven things now. And now I'm sitting on a massive pile of treasury bills. So um, <laughs> unintended. Congrats. Yeah, unintended. Um, so, uh, you know, and then I tell them, hey, this is what the stocks did. This is what everything did. So they can kind of see. Um, but yeah, just as a bottom up guy, uh, a lot of the quality growthier stuff that I happen to like has run and most of it I don't think is that cheap anymore um and so yeah that I think I you know I actually can't remember last time I've I've had so much uh in cash that's Toby, right now. just to uh give you an update on that so since January of 21 this is price only so we'll leave dividends out uh S&P is like plus 16 percent QVAL as a representative of statistical value was 27%. Since when now? January 21. Oh, yeah. Got it. Yeah. So uh, S&P is 17, plus 17. QVAL as representative statistical value is plus 27. Yeah. Over two and a half years. That's pretty good. Pretty good outperformance. It's not bad. It's. Yeah. Um, I guess it... Guess it helps when you don't get demolished in one of those years. <laughs> we we all we all pulled back a little bit last year though. There was no like it wasn't a demolition. I don't know what we were down. I, I forget now exactly, but could have been twenty percent plus. I think it was. I think it was kind of maybe even a little bit more than the market over that period of time. I, uh, I f- Arc just to throw that little <laughs> fun on there. Uh, minus seventy percent from January twenty one. But what? How much from the bottom? <laughs> Like two hundred percent, four hundred. Yeah. No, come on. Uh, I don't know. Let me see. So they go like minus eighty five or something. Peach trough. It was eighty. January of twenty twenty one. It was one forty two. 
today it's at 42 and I think it bottomed around 30. So. Oh. Yeah, I, kind of, I, I, I would have felt like, I felt like down 80, it was, it was going to do that old Heinehorn thing where, you know, what do you call a market that's down 90? It was a market uh, that was down 80, <laughs> went down half. Yeah. That cut that's, half. that's I think my favorite joke is, is, basically that exact same joke but you know minus 100 simply minus 80 and then minus 100 <laughs> i've very unfortunately tough. had uh, i've had uh maybe not a minus 100 but a couple close to that and it's uh not the most fun the double when i first started out, it was I, zero <laughs> I, I tried to i tried to time the bottom like find some way of like systematic way of timing the bottom like there is none i just tell you that right now but the thing that i always was amazed by was even if you enter these things late you know, you wait until there's a lot of the drawdown has gone by and then you get in, you still take a huge hit on it. Like you're still taking a 50% hit for exactly that reason that the move from 80 to 90 is a 50% hit for someone who's in right. at 80%. Right. It's just not like, it's just, it's so hard to time it. And then you take such a big hit anyway. Like you, you might as well just be in the whole way through. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's one of the issues of, you know, some people will look at, some strategy or some something, you know, maybe, maybe like low quality levered small cap value off the bottom from COVID or, you know, something like that. I've heard people say, well, you know, it's, it's tripled off the bottom and it's like, well, you know, if you were in it like one week before it hasn't tripled, you know, you're <laughs> yeah. up 150% or something, but like you, you're taking the bottom tick and also, uh, if we didn't get rescued, could have been different. You know, there's all these. Um, Do you feel like every single it, it, every single crash over the last two decades has been rescued? Though, like I, f- I feel like 2009 was the same way. It was looking really gnarly, and they just did the. I mean, who really knows what caused it? But John Hussman says it was they changed the accounting definition, so they didn't have to. The banks didn't have to mark their assets to book, mark to model, and all of a sudden everything took off. Yeah, that's a hard. Gonna let I that mean, one listen, go. I, like. <laughs> I think this is one of those like first order, second order things. And I may, I don't want to own something if, if we're going to need to change the accounting definitions to like for it to be saved. I want to make sure I own stuff that's going to be fine no matter what. That being said, the job of many people in the government is to make sure that the United States economy does not turn into dust. And like every time something scary happens, I think they'll try to do that. And like, Again, I'm not saying, you know, in 2009 or during COVID or whatever, you should rush out and go buy the most leveraged nonsense out there because if they don't do it, maybe you're dead. Um, But I think assuming that they're going to try to stabilize things is probably fair. And maybe, you know, Taleb, I've always liked his idea that, like, the more you just try to stabilize and fix stuff, like... People are going to take more risk because they think, you know, nothing too bad is going to happen. And then finally, one day, it's going to be a kind of a doomsday. I think that's a good argument. Um, if so, only, I don't know. Well, there was some kind of, you know, it's not like this is a science experiment where you have a control group where you could yeah. say that, oh, we didn't save the banks, let's say. Oh, wait, hold on a second. We actually do have that. It's called Iceland. They let their <laughs> banks fail. And they. How are they doing? They recovered faster than anybody. Did they? Yeah. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, but anyway, I, I don't want to make it all. The, the Fed always has, but... well, I just, 
that, that you know that we're currently in this rate hiking cycle. Presumably, it's it, it's uh, it's twofold, right? It's inflation, which who knows? The, I don't know if the measures about on that are correct or not. But the, ostensibly, the idea is that they're trying to break the back of inflation. And then there's also this, um, you know, housing as part of that. That housing's extremely expensive, taking up a large portion of. You know, I think that the current mortgages are like 40% of income, which is higher even than 2006 at the peak. And so they're going to start. The idea is that they raise rates until they break something. And then the moment that the stock market basically breaks, then they start cutting rates. But I don't know to what extent it has any impact. If you watch them cut rates when the market falls over, like they cut all the way down and then some other thing that intervenes to make it sort of turn around. I don't know to what extent that helps. It is kind of fun how they frame all this stuff as if it was like Godzilla came out of the ocean and is you know wreaking havoc on the on the they city. Right. Like guys, you're you kept rates at zero all the way through until like very recently. Uh I mean what are we doing here? Why do we trust these guys to do this stuff? Well, I, I want to know why Bananki gets a book called The Courage to Act and he gets uh, to, to do the big speaking tour when like you just pin rates at zero. Like I can do that. Anybody can do that. <laughs> it's the raising rates that's the hard part. Yeah. Well you know what's funny? I remember John Taylor uh, you guys know John Taylor, the sure, economist. Stanford economist. Stay right, Taylor Rule. So he like, I remember in, I mean, it must have been 2009 or 2010, maybe 2011. But but like the economy was, it, you know, KO'd. And he was trying to argue that like, well, if you use the Taylor Rule, you know, short rates should be at like three and a half or like some high number that was just obviously wrong uh, at the time. And where were they? Zero and or something close to they were zero. Low. Yeah. And, and the economy was growing like, you know, 2%. And it was, I don't know, 8 or 10% below. It was, sorry, a big number below sort of potential GDP. Um, and it was pretty funny because I, I, and the Taylor rules, like he just sort of, if I remember right, I read the paper one point, he just kind of did a regression on what central banks did and said, oh, it should be kind of like this. And it was funny because I remember reading this, just like, I'm glad this guy's not in charge because <laughs> to anybody paying attention, like right now, you know, rates need to be zero. And, you know, obviously that's not always true, but uh, I, I don't know. It could have been worse, I suppose. <laughs> well, we're, we're sort of discussing the the market a little bit. And so you, you've like, you've ad hoc raised a little bit of cash without any sort of, you're not making any bet on what, what's happening in the market. But it does seem to coincide a little bit that when value guys or, you know, quality, fundamental guys, I should say, raise a little bit of cash, it does tend to be closer to the top than the bottom, just by virtue of the fact that you can't reinvest at a reasonable rate. Barry has come out with- In theory, this, that's how it's supposed to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. In theory. God willing, Toby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. But I- is that I what you that... told me in 2017 when I was doing the same thing and we had like three more years of ripping oh, to I mean, you could, you could, we can have this conversation going back to 2012, JT. I like, know. It's, it's been the same way the whole way through. But, but Burry, <laughs> who, to be fair, Burry has called like eight of the last two crashes, but he's he's got a $1.6 billion notional, which means that his premium that he's actually spent is like whatever, 20 or $50 million. I don't know how he's structured it. He's got short puts on the queue. Sorry. He's got puts on the queues, which means he's effectively he's short the queues. He thinks that Nasdaq's going to fall over. Do you guys pay attention to that? You think he's got anything? He's, he's the big short. Nobody wants that one. I don't know. I mean, that's like 
he's a lot more tactical than yeah. I would want to be um, just in the way you go through life. Like he's, he's doing a lot of stuff and I did, that seems harder than trying to understand like what's a business worth and then try to pay a little less than that. Did he talk about using some technicals in his, you know, he did those early posts and the, the bulletin boards back in the day. Was he using technicals in there? Yeah. He said he would use it for like entry and exit kind of timing oh. stuff. I didn't know that. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's also like Jake said, I mean, I, I think you can think stocks are a little overvalued without thinking the world's going to blow up. And I think at that time, um, kind of crash protection was pretty cheap as well. So when he put them on recently, or oh, it was oh, in I June, I would have expected it to June. June. Yeah. So, I mean, hard to say, but yeah, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe, maybe he just thought, you know, he's got some longs and, you know, buying some protection was cheap. But I feel like that's always a possibility. That makes sense. But, but I barely, I'm not an option guy. Like when people start talking about options, I'm, I'm, can barely follow what they're talking about. <laughs> well, how about this? Somebody, somebody's left a question under, uh, I don't have my, somebody left a question under our post about Amazon. You, you had a throwaway tweet about Amazon, which has come back to haunt you. Do you want to, do you want to contextualize that? <laughs> yeah. What's so, going on? Um, a couple, two or three years ago, that is going. I had never. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. I mean, like a few, few years ago, I had never really followed Amazon that close because, like, I mean, you know, listen, all, all the reason why most people wouldn't, you know, I may, I will very rarely pay more than I don't know, twenty times free cash flow, twenty five, maybe. That's kind of the range, and like, it's never reported much in the way of profits, and you know, all this. So a few years ago, I, I took a long time to truly. Um, to really try to understand uh, Amazon retail because the reporting is complex and they try to hide the profitability. And, and so at any rate, I kind of got comfortable with it. And one of those stocks that I bought way too early was Amazon. Um, I forget, I forget exactly when, but it was at, you know, 2,800 or 3,000 or something like that. Um and the thesis was just, listen, I, I, I think I have an idea for what the underlying earnings power of retail should be. I have an idea for what I think UWS is worth and, you know, kind of put them together, maybe adjust for the science projects a little bit. And I thought it would be fine. Um, and so, you know, I sort of bought it all the way down. Um, and then like a few months ago, I just... I'm a, I'm a fundamentals guy. If it trades at what I think it's worth, I'll sell it or trim it. And I just like, uh, I, I tweeted some of the effect of in, I don't know how long, three months, six months, a year, two years, you know, AWS, the growth rate's going to bottom and they're going to show some profitability in retail. And like every hedge fund and quality long only is going to buy it. Every single one in the whole world. <laughs> uh, and like, it was kind of tongue in cheek. But I think it will probably happen, um, you know, even if AWS goes through, I mean, now it looks like we've stabilized here, but I was like, even if it goes from 3% to 4%, people are going to be like, oh, it's going back to 20 soon enough. Uh, so, so at any rate, that's started to happen a little bit. And I mean, the stock's up maybe a bit since I tweeted it, but it was pretty tongue in cheek and, and um, that's how a lot of people invest though. So uh, I was like, not trying to say go out and buy Amazon because this is going to happen. But uh, 
you know, I do own it. I hope it does. And uh, I guess we'll see in six months. <laughs> it's always possible. Who knows? Yeah. All that was missing was the little Adam Sandler GIF uh, on uh, this is how, this I, is how win. I win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny because I think as, as you sit in the markets for a while, you see the stories that investors will start to like. And, you know, one of the things with Amazon is, uh, you know, I, I think the earnings power in retail is like, I'm just going to say roughly like 50 billion of EBIT, whatever, 30, 40, 50, somewhere in there. Um, but like, I don't think they're going to show it. Uh, you know, they're investing a lot uh, via the income statement, you know, more than I think like anybody that owns it would like. Um, they do seem, the people that are running that company, they they actually, to me, do seem focused on, you know, the IRR of their spend. So as I was kind of buying it down, it was like, oh, you know, retail was quote unquote unprofitable. Um, I think largely due to to that spend. But, you know, once they got the logistics figured out, I, I, I thought I would kind of do a little better. Um, but you kind of need to believe the management team. They're going to say, hey, listen, we're not going to just like throw away 20 or $30 billion a year forever. Like if there's no return on it. Um, and my guess is, you know, with all those companies, but with Amazon too, the employees own a lot of stock. You know, if you've been there for 10 years, you could own, you know, I don't know, maybe a million dollars of stock. And, and one of my ideas is that if you run that company, you generally need the stock to work to keep the talent. Um, and so every once in a while, you can go through their historical financials and they'll, they'll sort of show a little leg like, hey, this is what we could earn. And so like, <laughs> I think right. what's probably going to what's probably going to happen is, and I don't know who knows the timing and but but you would I would think that they're going to show some profitability and they're going to say, OK, now we're going to like ramp up the investment again. And then, right. you know, it's, they're not going to show it anymore. And I feel like it's going to kind of yo-yo. So but that, we was Bezos, that was Bezos' <laughs> kind of philosophy, wasn't it? That he would he would mostly yeah. just keep on reinvesting and not show a great deal of profitability. But right. he's sort of, he, he stepped back, at least externally, it looks like he stepped back. Is he, is he gone for good or do you think he's just... He's just waiting for the, or he's monitoring the situation as long as it's running to his satisfaction yacht. then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good question. I don't know. I, I'm actually not sure. I don't know. Maybe some people do, but um, it's funny. Jassy caught a lot of flack because he became CEO and, <laughs> and the stock went down, I don't know, by half uh, pretty much immediately. Um, and it was kind of funny because, the retail profitability issues were basically their business doubled over a couple of years. The, sorry, the retail business. And they had two options. One was, oh, you know, let's be really careful to try to match supply to demand. And two was, we don't really know what's going to happen. We need to try to put on as much supply as we can. Um, you know, if you choose the first one, you get it wrong. Your, your customer goodwill that you built up for 25 years can go away quickly. So I thought it made sense what they did. 
but then it was, you know, we have a couple of years of extra costs on the back end. Uh, you know, I don't think that's the biggest deal in the world long term, but, you know, Jassy becomes CEO <laughs> pretty immediately. Retail is losing money and AWS growth is slowing, which, you know, I think they were kind of trying to help customers out and, you know, get their bills looking a little bit better. And so um, it's funny because I, I didn't really dislike anything he was doing. The results were, you know, downstream of what they decided a year or two before. Um, and then, you know, it's coming out in the Wall Street Journal. He's, he's kind of got an eye on some of those science projects and taken out some costs, which I think did make sense. So um, my hope is we'll never have to find out if Bezos wants to come back if the ship is sinking because it runs great. <laughs> a little bit like oh, Apple with Tim Cook stepping in that sort of a, a lot of the real sort of t- innovation where like genuine kind of just out of the clear blue sky innovation with an iPod, I guess, and then the iPad and then whatever else has come on after that. Instead, it's Tim Cook who's basically, he's a supply chain manufacturing kind of guy. And then that seems to have been what, Apple needed at that time to kind of take off to the the stratosphere. That's what attracted Buffett ultimately, I think, and that that's worked out really well. Yeah, I mean, what it seems like, you know, if Tim, if that transition happened, I don't know, five years before, could have been an issue. But it seemed like they built up so much goodwill and brand power that it was okay. I mean, it would have been an interesting experiment to me. I don't know what you guys think if. You know, if it was five years before and Tim Cook was CEO, if it would have worked out the same, I, you know, I don't I'd be really curious if just to see if you strip the market out, let's say that there was only a quote like in 2015 and then there was another quote today. Mm-hmm. What and you, all you got to see were the fundamental like, you know, what do the income statement look like? What does the balance sheet look like? Share count what would the narrative be of that business at that point? Because I think a lot of the narrative of has been positive because it's been a, it's something that's worked really well. So um, I don't know. It's always interesting to see how. Are you the, talking about Apple? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's, of course there's reflexivity with that as well, where, you know, the stock's working and the employees are happy. They do better work. Maybe people buy more, they go buy an Apple watch because they did well on their Apple stock. Like there's all kinds of stuff that's, you know, knock on effects, but it's always kind of an interesting counterexample to think about. Like if the stock was in the crapper and you had these same fundamental results, what would the stories be about the people who were running it? Well, it had a big buyback. So to some extent they've controlled that a little bit because they've been hoovering up stock the whole way through. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was sort of a- Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it was a little bit against their will initially because they had all the money and that was what attracted Icahn and Einhorn whenever that was, 2015 or 14. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, that's a really interesting case. Um, you know, I'm sure you guys have seen some people will compare like, you know, Google's valuation to like Coke's and like, oh, this is like, you know, so dumb. And uh, well you know, staples trade the way they do, you know, Coke's maybe a good example. The the free cash yields, I mean, it's let's call it just about what the dividend yield is. So, you know, it yields three or a little more. And, you know, you can be pretty sure that long-term they're going to grow their earnings, you know, around inflation or maybe a little more. Um, 
and you're going to get all the money, right? Like whatever money they produce, that's like truly should go to the owner as well. Like it's just, they've always allocated capital that way. And, and so like, you know, what, what is that worth? You know, if, if you can be pretty sure earnings are going to grow out inflation or a little more, uh, yeah, 3% yield, like that sort of seems pretty reasonable. You know, Google, uh, which, which I do own, but I'm not like, oh, you know, there's no risk here. It's, it's not like Coke. Uh, I mean, technology can change in a bunch of different ways. And so at any rate, I don't think it should get a stable valuation uh, and it doesn't, which is fine. Um, but it's interesting because Apple sort of does, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that's kind of like you said, from 2015 to now or whenever it bottomed, I don't quite really remember. It like, it went from a tech stock and now people are like, oh, it's a stable stock. And, you know, they pay you all the money and they're like whittling down the cash pile this year, like sort of, as I would argue, as they should. Um, and people are like, well, the brand power is so high. It's, it's kind of a staple and, you know, people are just going to keep buying iPhones. And it was really interesting to see the transition. I thought, I wish I'd owned it, but. Uh, I thought to see the transition from like multiple chain. Oh yeah. It's a hardware company and there's terminal value risk. And like, they have like $150 billion of cash for no reason to, Oh, there's no terminal value risk, which maybe it's true and maybe isn't, but like, it's going to grow a little bit and pay us all the money. And like, we think that's worth 30 times earnings. Uh, You know, I'm not judging, but it, it was certainly interesting to watch. And, uh, I think ben, highlights why Ben Graham had this this thought experiment yeah. that he pulled out. I think on the Buffett Group um, that they used to, or the whenever they would get together, and uh, so he asked them, "Assume that you have this this box. It's a clear box, and you could see that it's like creating money inside of it, but there's no way that you know of to get the money out of that box. How much yeah. would you pay for that box?" Uh, and I think that's this like exercise actually describes a lot of potential investments in the world of, well, I don't know how I'm ever going to get the cash out of that box, but people are willing to pay sometimes extreme amounts for if they think that that box is producing a lot of cash inside of it um, relative to other it's ones, like maybe. Google. Well, yeah, maybe. Okay. I mean, that might be a good yeah. example of one of those, like, well, how's the cash exactly coming out of here? Um, I mean, and of yeah. course, they've been doing more buybacks, but... Um, but yeah, it's an interesting thought experiment to think about. Like, if if the value of of a, any security or anything really is the amount of cash that you can get as the owner, what if you can't get that cash? Is it still worth something if it's you know being uh, being created inside of this box? Yeah, it's a. Re- I think I've. That's a. It's a really interesting question, and I will actually Berkshire. I, I believe personally, some people might not, but I think it's a good example of that. If you look at how a lot of people value Berkshire, they say, well, it's got, you know, all this excess cash and they do the investments per share thing and they just add that up in the earnings. I'm like, you know, I don't think that's the right way to do it. You know, they run very conservatively. And if you look back over, I mean, I think since 2000 um, and you take the cash and the fixed income and the bonds and I mean, depends how you want to treat the PREF, but like, I'll say that's also a fixed income that they've owned historically. It's more or less always added up to the flow, right? So, so if you look at the if you look at the balance sheet, you've got effectively the shareholders' equity in the flow, 
and the shareholders' equity has been invested in stocks and businesses and productive assets, and the float's been invested in, let's just simply say, cash. So, you know, like, what's that worth? And, and for me, it's, it's worth what I expect the after-tax interest income on the cash they hold is, right? So if it's whatever it is today, I don't know, 145 billion or 150 billion or something, um, you know, and I think through the cycle, it'll yield three after tax. I said, well, it's worth, you know, four and a half billion dollars times, you know, whatever you think it's going to grow a little than you, you put whatever the multiple is, but, but like, you know, people are like, oh, well, he's going to go out and buy a business. And I, I don't think so. Like, I, you know, I don't think you're going to have a situation where there's 150 billion to float and there's like $60 billion of cash and fixed income because he bought some big business. I, I personally don't think it's going to happen. It could be wrong, but, but like, that's the question is if it's not going to come back to you, then it's worth the cash that it produces, which um, it's probably going to be lower. Hey, T, do you want to do your, do you want to do your uh, veggies before we run out of time? <laughs> so uh, this is from, Michael Mobison's most recent white paper, uh, which is called Birth, Death, and Wealth Creation. And effectively, this is like an actuarial treatment of public companies. So there's some interesting numbers that kind of fall out of this. Um, <clears throat> and I will share with you so you don't have to read it if you don't want to. Um, so uh, of the firms in the US with 20 or more employees, only 1% of them are public. But they're the biggest and most important. Um, like the combined sales of the top 100 pump public companies are seven times those of the top 100 private companies in 2021. So um, they're, you know, while it is a minority of companies, uh, it, it is the most important to tend to be in the public sphere. Um, now, what's weird is that there's there's nearly 3,100 more listed companies in the U.S. at the peak in 1996 compared to today. So there's way less public companies than there used to be. Um, so there have been different periods of time where there have been kind of booms and busts in company births. And when we say birth, it doesn't mean the founding of a company. It means like a company uh, going public. Um, so you have different periods of IPOs when they were popular. So for instance, 1969 alone, 780 IPOs, uh, which is like, that's actually 18% of the total of public companies today. Um, so it's like huge. Um, there are only 39 IPOs last year. Uh, in 2005 to 2007, there were 124 SPACs, which is another way that companies can be born, quote unquote. Um, you know, 861 in 2020 and 2021, which was actually two thirds of the total ever issued wow. <laughs> occurred in those two years. Wow. Uh, but already 209 of the of the 613 SPACs from 2021 have already been liquidated. Mm. So that gives you a little a little sense. Um, <clears throat> So, um, so since, uh, since there's, there's more like, so there's actually a lot less IPOs that are happening. And a lot of it has to do with the cost of, of regulation, like regulatory requirements of Sarbanes-Oxley, uh, loss of confidentiality, potentially media scrutiny, IR hassles. There's a lot of reasons to not be a public company actually. Uh, but on the plus side, you get liquidity for your stock-based compensation, potentially, maybe cheaper access to capital. Um, and that's that might be one of the reasons why there's less public companies today is that there's more private financing available just in general for all companies. Um, so it's made like going public less necessary than it used to be. 
Uh, <clears throat> also, what's happening is that smaller businesses are finding it probably increasingly attractive to sell themselves to bigger businesses as opposed to IPOing and going through all of that hassle. So in general, you just end up with less companies that are that are out there. Companies are also waiting a lot longer to go public. Um, so 1976 to 2000, the median age was 7.9 years. Since 2000 to today, it's it's nine and a half years. So you know, companies are older. They're also bigger. Um, so you compare like Amazon's IPO was 750 million at launch when it went public in 97, and it's you know 1.4 trillion recently. So that's you know. And it was only three years old when it when it went IPO. So it's essentially all of the wealth creation that occurred for Amazon has happened as a public company. Compare that to Meta, whose market cap was 133 billion when it went public in 2012, wow. eight years after its founding, and and now it's at, I don't know let's call it like 770 billion. So you know, basically like an entire 20 percent of the company's wealth had occurred as it was a private company before it went public. So, and there's other examples that are even more extreme of like most of the wealth being created as a private company and then going public. And then there's just not as much meat left on the bone. Uh, how about longevity? Public companies have a half-life of about 10 years. So for every, you know, doubling of, or for every halving of uh, population, it takes, you know, it's about 10 years worth. Um, so the average company um, in the S&P 500 the, the the average age was 12 years in 1996 today it's 20 years and the average market cap in 96 was 21 billion and today it's 78 billion so they're older and they're bigger today what what index was that sorry S&P 500 um and so how does a company like get out of the population um this is like you know death quote unquote so you have mergers and acquisitions which is actually explains more than half of how the companies are disappearing out of public domain. Uh, you have also, you know, the private takeouts. Um, this is just happening a lot more than it used to. Um, and as I think everyone knows, maybe at this point, like you want to be the one who's typically you want to be the one who was acquired, not the acquiree. Mm-hmm. Um, the median premium is 29% of for the, oh. the person who's acquired. And the average is closer to 45%. Um, so, and then of course you can also have like a delisting for cause, which is, you know, bankruptcy or failing to meet exchange requirements. And that's about 39% of the quote unquote deaths. Um, I'm surprised it's as many as that. That's a, well, that's a lot. yeah, it is, but you gotta, I mean, there's a lot of micro caps and stuff that that okay. happens okay. to a little bit more regularly. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen this before, but the, the New York stock exchange requires a stock to sustain a price of at least $1, have 400 or more shareholders, and maintain a market capitalization of no less than $15 million. So I've, I've never seen those numbers before, but that's a little, little trivia for you. Uh, and then there's also just there's 2% of the companies that just delist voluntarily because they decide it's too expensive to stay public or, or whatever. Um, and microcaps have been the source of most of this extinction. Um, so in 96, microcaps were 56% of the total companies that were public. Today, it's down to 33%. Um, Next thing to talk about is like hot versus cold markets. So, you know, in hot markets, there tends to be a high volume of deals. There's, you know, big gains on the first day of trading. So you think like, you know, in 1999, 476 IPOs, the average return on the first day was 57%. Uh, I know. It's crazy, huh? 
And then another three, uh, 380 in 2000 with a return of 45% on the first day. Wow. Compare that to cold, which was no surprise, 2001, <laughs> the next year, 80 IPOs, average gain of 8%, uh, and then only 66 IPOs in 2002, average return of 5%. So uh, also, this probably shouldn't be a big surprise, but the delisting rate is much higher for companies that come public in a hot market. Uh, mm-hmm. So than during a cold market. So one study found that 41% of the companies that listed in a hot market had delisted within five years. So, so maybe you're winning early in this hot market, but uh, it's it might come back to bite you, Those which is what we expect, right? A little bit, right? Um, so let's see. Of course, you know, we should talk about this, this Hendrik Bessenbinder study, right? Where uh, he studied 28,000 public companies since 1996. Um, and he defined wealth creation as anything that was over one month T-bill results. And 60% of the sample of his 28,000 uh, destroyed 9.1 trillion in value. Uh, of the, and then the other 40% wow. created 64 trillion in value. So you end up of the net 55 trillion that was created, 50 trillion was attributed just to 2% of that sample. Right, so we have a very power law distributed outcomes here, and the top three, which were Apple, Microsoft, and Exxon Mobil, added six trillion all by themselves, which was like twelve percent of the of that total. Um, so just three companies did twelve percent of the work. Um, so what about outside of the U.S.? Similar results were found in other studies, uh, but of course, it's not an easy ride for these huge wealth creation uh, vehicles, right? Uh, Apple had had three drawdowns over 70% over the course of that time period. Amazon was down 91% in the dot-com bust. Um, So, you know, good luck, you know, being able to ride in the entirety of one of these things, if you can find it. Um, Now, interestingly enough, you know, there's a little bit of recency bias probably for a lot of us. It's not just big tech companies that are in this. Uh, In fact, they're actually underrepresented in the top wealth creation population um, and overrepresented were healthcare and energy, which might surprise mm-hmm. people. Um, so, and of course, you know, there's, there's financial metrics that they found that correlated with this wealth outcome uh, creation and, and it'd be what you'd expect, right? Increases in net income, internally generated assets and sales growth, rising return on assets, above average R&D spend, which actually may be a little surprising, um, and then cash accumulation. So like you have a business that's working, you're reinvesting in it, growing the base. Um, there was a actually a pretty clever study that was done of 16,000 US firms since 1975. And what they did was they calculated the lifetime earnings and then compared that back to the IPO price. So this really is sort of like that, that you know box of cash calculation, but like run in reverse looking backwards, like how much earnings were there for the entirety of this company? And then like, what did it IPO at? Like how reasonably efficient is the market at, at, at ascertaining like what's it worth on day one versus the lifetime? Uh, and they found that the uh, two thirds of the companies failed to generate sufficient earnings to justify day one stock price. Wow. So this, you know, as- Two thirds. As, as Buffett said- uh well I, they they did discount yeah oh okay yeah sorry go ahead so uh you know as Buffett kind of has always warned like you got to be really really careful with IPOs because people it's naturally you're at an informational disadvantage compared to the person who's selling which is typically you know the founders who know what's Private going on they know where VCs. the bodies are totally so uh 
so yeah, those are some some stats for you to chew on for priors confirmed. Good. Yeah, yeah, all priors confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, those are wild stats. I, I've always found it interesting that those statistics of you know sixty percent of the companies you know underperform T bills. Like, does that change how you invest? Uh, I've always thought it's hard to have too many conclusions from that. That was from IPO, though, right? Um. Well, this is Betts and Binder's study of starting yeah, okay. in whatever nineteen. What did he he did like? I thought there was some cri- criticism of Betts and Binder's study. There has been, uh, I but I, it is. I, you know, I don't. I'm not smart enough to tell you exactly the the ins and outs of it. I, I would say remember. that it's probably pretty good advice not to buy IPOs. Like that's probably unless you have some... rate, It's probably not a not the best place to be fishing. Yeah. And then probably seasoned companies are a little bit better where they've actually shown an ability or they're in the very near future ability to like generate some free cash flow. And then you need a management team. I mean, a lot of those things, I mean, one of the things you said right at the start, Carla, about it sort of being a negative process where you're just excluding things that don't meet particular criteria like that's a that's got to be the most efficient way of doing it and you just eliminate vast swathes of the market doing stuff like that yeah i don't i don't think i've ever bought an ipo or close i guess i did on one back and turned out probably about how it should have which was like a zero percent return through its buyout but uh you know i thought that was a real business at least yeah you know it's funny i actually have sort of a um you know, like you probably shouldn't be out buying stocks when it's one of those hot IPO markets. I have a similar one now, which I, I think I've just realized, which is when you see high yield issuance start to rip, like, like same idea. You just got to be careful. Like, you know, I get um, a lot of my holdings, I get the email alerts when they have an SEC filing. And, you know, like when Transdime's out in the debt markets, like, do you, you shouldn't be buying anything <laughs> like, you know, put it all away. Just wait. You know, they issued some debt and maybe it was a week or two ago, you know, high sixes like, and I was like, Oh, okay. Like if they're issuing debt, you know, voluntarily, uh, markets are probably a little hot. So <laughs> anyways. Yeah. What's, uh, what's the, what's the earnings yield on Transdime right now? Mm, that's a complex one because you've got um, the arrow markets. This year, we should be a little less than like 90% of kind of worldwide flight miles compared to 2019. So usually you grow four or 5% a year. Um, uh, sorry, the um, worldwide RPMs, they're called uh, revenue passenger miles. They grow four or 5% a year most years. Mm-hmm. So you know, if we had like normal trend growth off 2019, you should be, you know, what, I don't know, 15, 20% above that level. And we're at 90%. So kind of depends on what you think the full recovery is. But um, my guess is if, you know, we didn't get all the way back up, their EBITDA dollars would be maybe low 4 billions and we're at like 15, 16 X, maybe 16 X that number, um, which uh yeah so you're roughly in line with the the debt guys on yield 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's about the right way to look at it. Even though say. they're in front of the line in front of you. <laughs> yeah, well, hopefully, you know, yeah. the, the EBITDA dollars are gonna grow over the time. But right. Um I've always said yeah, yeah. Fifty like 15x if you waterfall it down is like 20x free cash flow. Sorry, 15x EBITDA is like 20x free cash flow, roughly unlevered. Um so that's always seemed like a reasonable place for it to trade to me. Um, and if it gets much below that, I think it's cheap, but, but yeah, that's, I'm listen. Uh, how should I say, uh, my clients and I own, own less of that than we did, uh, nine months ago. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> so the revenue passenger miles as the metric that you track, um, and that's that's still at ninety percent. So pre COVID, it's ninety percent pre COVID. That's funny because I got some of the statistics that I have seen. I'm not I'm not disputing that that is yeah. correct. At all. I'm just trying to square it with the statistics that I've seen because I, I thought that a lot of the passenger miles were kind of back above where they. I thought we'd sort of found this new high. How, how do you how do you reconcile those two? Do you know what I'm yeah. talking about? Do you, have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I think U.S. Uh, were above. It's just U.S. Uh, okay. Like U.S. domestic, but there's some places that are above. Um, uh, there's also international hasn't quite recovered yet, and that's there's generally bigger okay. planes, more seats. Um, it was actually funny. I uh, a family friend. This is is the CEO of like a, a big international airport. And he was telling me a few weeks ago, he's like, beginning of the year, I had budgeted, you know, like zero Chinese travelers, like literally zero. Uh, and he was like, and now we are, I mean, I don't think they're back, quite back to pre-COVID levels, but it's, but it's getting close. Huh. Yeah. So, so that's been basically China reopened. That's another one. Like every single hedge fund was like, oh, trans times, like the most levered aftermarket growth operationally and financially. Uh, so like we better go buy that. And it just like went vertical, uh, maybe ignoring the long-term earnings power a little bit. Maybe not, but maybe. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> anyways. <laughs> It's funny uh, every time I fly, which is only domestically. Although I did fly, no, I did fly internationally at the end of the year. Everything was full. The, yeah. My international flight, which was to Australia, was full. Domestically, yeah. everything I've flown has been full. It feel yeah. like we're back. Yeah, yeah. and it's so back. I I swear, like once cheap, a week. Yeah. yeah, I think like once a week. There's an article in the journal that's it's some bottleneck because um, employment throughout the whole aerospace chain went down so much. It's like. Oh, you know, we don't have enough flight attendants. And then the next week it's like, we don't have enough air traffic controllers. And, you know, so it's, I think it will likely maybe take a little while to get back to like full capacity and growing if the demand is there, which, you know, uh, that's, that's another argument, but um, so. It's all interesting. That's a great, great, great having you on the show, Carla. If folks want to get in contact with you or uh, follow along with what you're doing, what's the best way to do that? Uh, probably direct message to Willis underscore cap is me would be the best way yeah, to get in touch. How are people going to know it's you when you got those glasses on in your, uh, <laughs> I changed it. I, oh, well, did. actually I need to change it again because I changed <laughs> it to the am safe seatbelt, which is the trans part is my new picture. But like now with the stock where it is, yeah, I think I need something new because 
you know you need well, a, some other dog in there now <laughs> yeah full full valuations <laughs> maybe time to change it up <laughs> i like the fun. i like the picture i like the uh, glasses that one always yeah, right. so you could yeah. tell. So, so, i thought, so I thought yeah. it was the uh, the Zorro, the Zorro mask with the glasses. <laughs> yeah. It was a disguise, but it was funny because at the time I wore glasses in real life. So, uh, maybe well, what did you get kicked off for? Can you say you don't want to say that publicly? Uh, it just, I think it was going to be better to be anonymous. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't kicked off or anything. Just, oh, well, you uh, weren't kicked off. Okay. Yeah. So, some of the rules need to follow. <laughs> did you try to fight Elon? What's, what's journalistic? You want to give a journalistic plug before we hang up? Oh, that's this is my software project that everybody already knows about at this point. But uh, building, we're still building, even though it's it looks quiet from the outside. But uh, you know, like we're feverishly still building features and all kinds of stuff that uh, hopefully we're leading towards an investment operating system that will be a pretty big game changer eventually if we can get it built. So, yeah, it's exciting. Hey, stay tuned. Love it. Thanks, uh, Kyla Hassan, Willis, Cap, and JT. As always, folks, we'll be back next week. We'll see everybody then.